Matthew 28, 16 to 18 first. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Second reading is John chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. It's the word of the Lord. Stay tuned for Luke chapter 13. Sometime in the next five years. I promise we'll get there. It's a great passage as well. Uh, but no, we are in uh, John 13 and uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Um, I like to, would love to invite the kids to go up the back now with Kirsten. Uh, they will be following along with some similar material uh, designed for them. So Caleb's running back, Pablo's going that way. That's great. Um, and as they go, how about I pray for them? Father, we, uh, we thank you so much for our kids. Uh, thank you that they're growing up to know and love Jesus. And we pray for them now that you would be with them and that you would continue to um, uh, train them up in the way they should go as people growing to become disciples of your son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, I want you to imagine for a moment a damn lake. Okay? Imagine a great dam holding back a huge amount of water. Imagine millions, billions, maybe trillions of litres pressing down upon this immense concrete structure. Now imagine that someone goes into the control centre, flips a switch and the floodgates open. Water pours through the new opening. It's, it's white, it's frothy, it's powerful, and it spreads down into the, the area below. And whatever might have been there, maybe a, a river, maybe even just a creek, is suddenly transformed into a raging torrent, a mighty river. I wonder if that's the sort of image that the prophet Habakkuk saw. Something like that, when he wrote in, in the pages of his prophecy um, what was to come, what he foresaw for the world. You see, uh, the pages of the Old Testament tell us a story of how God, from the very beginning, from the time that Adam and Eve left the garden, uh, that God began to reveal himself to the world. But he starts small, he starts confined into one area and one people. 
He starts with Abraham. And Abraham and his family become Israel. And to Israel, God's special people, God revealed what he's like, who he is. But when Habakkuk came around sometime many centuries later, he saw a day when the knowledge of God would no longer be confined to just Israel. But like the floodgates opening, the knowledge of God would flood out into the world. He wrote this in chapter 2, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is a vision of the floodgates opening. And we know who opened them. In fact, we know when it happened. Because in Mark chapter 1, Jesus said, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. You see, the only way that we can truly know the glory of God, the only way we can see God in that kind of intimate and true way is by gazing upon Jesus, the Son of God. His life, his death, his resurrection are the climax of God's story. We saw it just happen at Easter. And yet that is not the end of the story, as as Chris pointed out before. But it's the catalyst by which a great gospel flood is unleashed upon this world. God's plan, you see, is for the world to be saturated with the gospel of Jesus, his good news. What does it look like? Well, uh, a guy called Jeff Vanderstelt uh, describes it like this. He says that gospel saturation is when every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus in word and deed. When every man, every woman, every child has a daily encounter with Jesus in word and deed. What, what an immense vision that is, right? And to some extent, we might go, oh, yeah, that's cool, that's true, and yet it's far off because it won't happen, it won't truly happen or be fulfilled until Jesus comes again to renew the world and set up his eternal reign here on earth. And yet, the vision of the Bible is that it begins with Jesus at the cross, his resurrection, and continues with his people. How does that vision, how is that going to be implemented? How is that going to happen with people like you and me? Well, it's amazing. God promises that it will. It will happen through ordinary Christians, ordinary men, ordinary women, ordinary children who begin to have encounters with Jesus and who lead others to have encounters with him as well. In Matthew, we see uh, Jesus gathering his disciples up on the mountain uh, after his resurrection, before he goes back to the Father. And uh, there he gives them what has become known as the Great Commission. He says, go into all the world and make disciples. And as he does that, what Jesus is doing is he's setting the spiritual temperature for his church. For all ages to come until his return. And he gives them a mission. He tells them that what the primary church is, the primary mission of the church is. And that is to make disciples of all nations. What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, Jesus actually gives two parts to it, doesn't he? Because he says that to make disciples begins with what? Baptizing. And that means to bring people to faith in Jesus so that they become baptized, immersed in him 
and become Christians. But there's a second part, and that's teaching. Teaching them to obey all that Jesus commands them to. And that's about bringing those people to maturity in Jesus. So baptism, bring to faith. Teaching, bring to maturity the two parts of making disciples. I'm going to expand today on the first one. And Chris is going to um, go more deeply into the second one next week. So the question I want to answer today is, how is the church to fulfill its purpose to help people become disciples of Jesus, to bring them to faith? Uh, For some of you who have been around our church for a while, uh, this is going to be a good reminder for you. But perhaps things that you've heard before, and that's okay. But for those of you who might be a bit newer, this might be new. Um, This might be quite different from what you heard before and so I hope it's really encouraging for you and um, uh, gives you a a passion for God's mission and God's church. So three essential ingredients to being part of God's mission to bring people to faith. One, know your identity. Two, live it out in community and three, rest in the gospel. Know your identity, live it out in community and find rest in the gospel, rely on the gospel. So let's start with um, this thing about identity. Uh, when you read the Bible carefully, uh, you start to see that a passion emerges about how people are put together. That what people do springs out of who they are. So for example, in Genesis 3, um, uh, we see that uh, Adam and Eve have sinned and fractured creation. And then from Genesis 3 onwards, we see what the consequences are. That somehow their identity has changed from people who are perfect to people who are deeply sinful. And we see that what happens, what the sinful people do, well, seems obvious, they sin. Sinners sin. The outworking of who they were, that their relationship with God and each other is fractured, meant that they would live out of that identity um, in everyday life. And it would be a curse. Unfortunately, uh, the Bible story doesn't end there, but the gospel of Jesus that we find out through later says that God's gracious work in our hearts is to give us a new identity. To be gone with that old identity of being a sinner and to become something new. What are, we, what are we made to be? Well, we're made to be lots of things. We're made to be new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. We're made to be redeemed people who have been forgiven, sanctified, justified. We're made to be children of God. Right? And we're made to be servants of the King and many more, if you go through Scripture. And so with a change in identity comes a change in action. What we do, what we are, flows into what we do. So that means that no longer are we slaves to be sinners who sin, but we are being transformed to live differently. We are new creations who work for restoration. We are redeemed people who say no to the slavery of sin. We are children of God who love like family. We are servants of the King who selflessly serve God and others. And so we see how the various aspects of our identity lead us to live out that identity in particular ways. And to put it another way, whatever God wants to do for us, He also wants to do through us. Say it again. Whatever God wants to do for us, He also wants to do through us. 
to unpack that a little bit more, let me add one more aspect to our Christian identity. We have been made to be missionaries. And missionaries by nature are people who share good news. Uh, in John chapter 20, 21, uh, we have the risen Jesus uh, appear to his disciples. It's kind of John's great commission. Um, and, he said, and Jesus appears to his disciples and he says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. This is really important. What God has done for us, sent Jesus to redeem us, forgive us, change us. He wants to do through us, sending us out to continue Jesus' mission as his representatives. What God has done for us, he wants to do through us. In other words, so mission then is not simply a program or an event or a calling even. It's something that flows out of who we are. Do you know that the word mission actually comes from the Latin word sent? So a missionary is simply one who is sent. Not only sometimes to those who are overseas and other people groups who are unreached with the gospel, not just sent overseas as mission partners, as we have, uh, we have some of them here at Inner West, but sent out our front door every day to our unreached neighbours, friends, family. If you stop to think about it, this is huge because it means that mission isn't just an activity that we do, but it's a lens through which we see our whole lives. And imagine what would happen if you viewed your life through the lens of mission every day. How would that change things? How would that change your workplace, going to work in the morning? How would it change going to the gym? How would it change walking your dog? How would it change going to the park with your kids? How would it change your uh, family gatherings? How would it change your, uh, how you use your house, how you understand the use of your home? How would it change what you do with your free time? Imagine if you viewed everything through the lens of being a missionary. I've seen heaps of examples of people at our church just in the last few years who have started to see their lives lived in this way. I remember we had a family here last year, no one loved, now in Tasmania, planning a church called the Bester family. And we learned so much from the Besters because what they did was they had a house on a park just over here, the Crescent, and I would walk past their house all the time and they would always be out the front of their house in the park with their kids just talking to people, just sitting out there just talking. And their house became an open house. Like people were just invited in all the time to sit around table and, and discuss all sorts of things, talk about life and faith. It's an example of seeing your home through you and your family through a missional lens. Uh, another example, in our missional community, um, our brother Peter Bryce has been talking about uh, telling us how he's decided every Wednesday to go over the Footscray Plaza in his day off and have it, sit down with his Bible and pray and wait to see who rocks up. You've got to ask him about it because the people who rock up, it's amazing, the random people, who, the random conversations he's been having with people. It's early days, yeah, but it's a way of saying, I'm just going to use my free time to go and wait and follow the Spirit to see what 
he's got for me today, who, what sort of conversation he's got for me to have today. It's great. This is what happens when we live out of our identity as missionaries. We start being creative about how we live our lives. But we just don't just do it together, right? We live it out in community. That's my second point. Uh, in a previous church, I led um, a small group. And one day I thought, let's talk about missions. So I thought what we'd do is we got out my, well, my trusty whiteboard, which I love dearly uh, as part of the family. And uh, I said to them, like, let's write down on the whiteboard all the things that are really difficult about evangelism and mission. And I thought maybe we'll have three or four. We covered that whiteboard in like five minutes. You couldn't, there was no white left. <laughs> it was just difficulties and struggles. And, and lots of them came down to the fact that it's hard to share your faith. It's a hard thing to do. It's daunting. It can be embarrassing. There's so much pressure to have the right answers. Um, you've got to have the time and the energy to be able to do it. And a lot of people actually don't even have that many friends who aren't Christians. And so it's hard to meet new people. And actually also when you get out there, you start realizing that Australian culture is quite often um, anti the gospel. So it's hard. It's difficult. And a lot of people were really, really frustrated, really came out in that evening. It's kind of like, imagine you signed up to Clean Up Australia Day, right? You sign up online, get an email, they send you a list, a, a, an email, and they say, great, you've got Kensington. Fantastic. Great. And by the way, you're the only one. And you've got all of Kensington the cover in one day. How would you feel? Well, either you'd be like, I... You probably wouldn't even turn up, right? That's like that's a huge task to do, and you've only got one of you. What sort of difference could you possibly make? Either you'd just be really frustrated and disappointed, or uh, you might not even bother. But then imagine you get a second email and say, "Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. There was a mistake. Got the wrong email. Actually, you've got a team of fifty who are going to be with you to clean up Kensington, pick up all the rubbish." How, imagine your heart changed there. How do, you, how do you feel? You probably feel great. Oh, well, that's doable then. Sure, 50 people. Man, we can, we can really get out there and do something great with that sort of team. You're going to feel relief. It's very common for Christians to believe that they're sent out on mission by themselves, that sharing their faith is up to them and them alone that they are lone rangers and they don't even have Tonto with them. It's just you out there. The truth is that Jesus never sent his disciples off by themselves. Not once. He always sent them in groups of at least two. And Peter, later on, calls the church what a royal priesthood. It's a sense in which the, the church is a community that together is to introduce people to God. And even when we send out our missionaries overseas with global mission partners, what do, we, do we ever send them out alone? Almost never. Maybe in very rare circumstances, but almost always we say, we want to make sure you've got a team. So why would we think that our everyday mission out our front door would have to be done by ourselves? doesn't make sense. Jesus, uh, in John 13, we heard it read before, gathered his disciples one last time before the cross and he says a new command I give you 
love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And we might imagine he'd stop there. Great, Jesus, awesome, love, fantastic. But he goes on. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is groundbreaking. Jesus is framing the disciples' life as a community after he has gone. He's saying, this is what life is like. You're going to be defined by the love that binds you together as a community, as a family. But not only that, the love you are defined by would be also how you connect with those who are outside the community. Jesus expected that people would discover who he is when they experience the love at the heart of his church. That's how it happens. And this means... That the primary evangelistic tool of Christianity is the local church. The primary tool, the primary unit of how the mission is going to be accomplished is the local church. I wonder if the description of how the first church operated in the book of Acts, in Acts 2, is an example of this being put into practice. You know the famous passage. Um, the first disciples, the first Christians are gathered together and they're committed to speaking the truth in love to each other through the apostles' teaching, through sharing the Lord's Supper together. And they're also committed to generosity and selling everything to make sure that everyone, no one is uh, in want of anything. And sharing and doing hospitality with each other, having each other into their homes, breaking bread together. And then Luke simply adds at the end of this description, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, for so long, I just thought this was a separate little comment that was linked not to like people going out and the apostles evangelizing people. But then I thought, why would that be? Why would Luke describe this community of love and then add, and this is how it grew. This is how became, people became Christians, and those two things not to be linked must be connected. Surely as people were welcomed into this church family, they began to see how the gospel of Jesus had invested love into their hearts for each other and for God. And that these people then followed that love through to the source of that love and found it for themselves. I think, it's, I think this is right. So if that's true... What does it look like for us? Well, first of all, it means we have to love each other. It's kind of obvious, I think, but it needs to be said. We need to love each other. We have to love each other as Jesus loved us. That means sacrificially, selflessly. And that is the first and most important step to mission. But the second step is making sure that our doors are open so that others will see us working out that love in everyday life. And I say everyday life because opening our doors only on Sunday isn't enough. People will see something of our love here in this room, Sunday morning, 10.30 a.m. They will. But the reality with, and I think you agree with me, we tend to have our best faces on on Sunday, right? We tend to be on our best behavior. We tend to want to put forward our, you know, best, put our best foot forward, and I'll start with the um, analogies there. Uh, we, we want to put, our, we want to be, we are um, on our, we are, there, 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 there. I'm just going to stop there. 
We need more than Sunday. We need because love, true love, true godly love, shines brightest and most obviously in the midst of mess, not just in the midst of a weekly event. The love that produces patience when someone gets on your nerves. The love that produces inclusion of people who are different from you. The love that means sacrifice when, when, someone, that, when something that someone needs is costly for you to give. That kind of messy love tends to happen not front of stage, but in the backstage of the church, not literally the backstage. And so actually we need to give people backstage passes to our lives, don't, they? don't we? So that they can see the love in the mess, because that is love that's produced by grace. There's one more aspect to the witness of this kind of community, and that's understanding that we're not all the same. That in fact we are designed by God to complement each other. Uh, Paul talks in 1 Corinthians about spiritual gifts, and we often talk about them, you know, mercy, administration, teaching, preaching, prophecy, all that sort of stuff. We talk about normally, and in Paul's context as well, in the sense of this is how we build up the church. This is how we edify the church. And that's true. It's how we function together. But that's not the only uh, reason that we're given gifts, because God gives us everything also for the mission. They're not just given so we can serve each other, but so we can serve those outside the church. See, really, when I go out and I represent Jesus just by myself, I'm just representing one very small, very small portion of what Jesus is like because I'm just one person. But do you know that we are the body of Christ? Together, we represent a much larger uh, portion of what Jesus is like, to, and we have to be together to do that. So when we go out together, we get, people get a fuller picture of who Jesus is. It's a common myth that it's only people who are gifted in evangelism who are effective on mission. And it's true. Some people are gifted in a way so they can winsomely persuade people of the truths of the Bible. But you know what? Evangelists are not often not so great at caring and loving people. In fact, often they're pretty terrible at it. But you know who are? People with the gift of mercy and compassion. They're great at caring and loving for people. But those people might not be so good at systematically teaching through the doctrines of Scripture, but you know who are? Teachers. Great at doing that. But teachers are often not so great at making sure that the mission is effective and efficient behind the scenes. But administrators are. You see what I'm getting at? For the mission to succeed, we all have to work together because God's designed us to do it that way. That doesn't mean that teachers shouldn't care for people and evangelists shouldn't help out with administration. No, of course not. But we are all designed, wired in certain ways to give to the mission. We can't do it on our own. We need each other. And even people paid to be on church staff can't do it by ourselves. I can't do it by myself. Actually, I and me and Chris are set aside, paid to equip the saints for the work of ministry, not to do it all ourselves. Now, my suggestion then is, what, how are we going to do this? How are we going to live this sort of way? In missional communities. That's why we've structured our church this way. 
Not, with, not just as a small group or a Bible study, but as a missional community. More than a small group, more than a Bible study. A servant, a family of servant missionaries sent out together to make disciples. And as we go on mission together, not only will we make disciples, but we will be discipled. Because if we go on mission together, we'll have to not just rely on each other, but rely on God and His grace and mercy and strength. We have to come back again and again to the real power behind the mission, which is the gospel. And as a result, we will be grown up into maturity in the faith. That's what I want to finish with. What does it look like then to rely on the gospel in mission? It's inevitable that when we start living missional lives, we will be vulnerable to various hazards. All sorts of things will happen to stop us, to impede us from being effective missionaries. One is that people end up burning out. I've known so many people who have burnt out trying to be on mission. Why did it happen? They work themselves into the ground and they often take their families or communities with them. They burn out in a blaze of something that's not so glorious. <laughs> That's one thing that happens. Another is that sometimes people begin to see their way of doing mission as the only way. They look around at others who don't seem to be as working as hard as them, who aren't as hardcore as them, and they start feeling kind of bitter and resentful and frustrated at these other Christians who aren't doing things the right way. And they become pretty lonely pretty quickly, <laughs> forced to being lone rangers because no one wants to work with them. And one more is perhaps the most common is that when people hear the call of Jesus to go out and make disciples, they look for excuses. That's too hard. I'm too busy. I've got a young family. I've got elderly parents need to look after. I'm not sure I can work with others anyway. They have a, a deep fear that if they took mission seriously, their lives will be worse off for it. Now, I don't mind telling you that I have personally experienced all three of these hazards. I have felt tired, strained, and on the verge of burnout. I have felt, I've felt like frustrated at others for not kind of getting it right. And I have looked for excuses to avoid being on mission. That's me. I'm sure you have had the same experience of one or more of those things. How can we then avoid these dangers? Well, we have only one thing to offer anyone, really, when it comes to the struggles and stresses of life, and that's the gospel. If your tendency is to burn out on mission, then it's probably because you've put your significance in the mission itself. You've placed the mantle of saviour of the world on your own shoulders. You've made people's eternal destiny your own personal responsibility. And as a result, somewhere deep down, you end up tying your value and your significance to your success or your failure. Who we are flows out into what we do. If my identity is wound up in the mission and I fail at it, there goes my self-worth as well. Or if I succeed at it, there comes my pride. In that moment, you lose your grounding on the gospel. 
because the gospel says that we obey the commission, the mission, not because in success we find fulfillment, but because in Jesus' success we have already been fulfilled. That means that when we see success, we can praise God. And when we see failure, it won't crush us. We have the resources, the spiritual internal resources to persevere with joy. Jesus uh, reminds us that he is the ultimate missionary. The fate of all people is in his hands alone. And he is the Lord of harvest who is at work on the mission even when we're not. When you are asleep, Jesus is at work. When you're um, being disobedient, Jesus is at work. When you are being obedient, Jesus is at work. When we trust in Jesus, we can do our best with what we have and, and, and rest knowing that it's not all up to us. So that's for burnout. Second one, what if we go frustrated with the weakness of others? Well, that probably means you've forgotten just how weak you are yourself. As if any of us can truly achieve anything if it wasn't for God's power working through us. We are transformed only by grace, and our missionary efforts are only by grace as well. In fact, doesn't God love to use the weakest of people to persuade and bring to faith the strongest of opponents? He often does. So when we become wrapped up in pride, when we look down at others and go, you're not as good as me, you're not as hardcore as me, why can't you step up your game? Then that is uh, an outworking of a, a prideful heart. And God may well look over you in the mission and find someone else who has a hum humility of spirit. And finally, what about when we just find it all too hard? When we find that we just got excuses come to our mouths so quickly? When we justify to ourselves why we don't really need to go and live like this? What well, often means, there's a bunch of reasons for why this might be the case, but I reckon one of the biggest ones is that it may mean that we have lost our love for those who are far from God. Which in turn means that we've forgotten just how far from God we once were. See, if you realize, if you know, if you get a sense of how far away from God you were before God pursued you and brought you back, then there's no, if you don't have a sense of that, then there's no way that you will yearn to see the lost found those who are far brought near. You won't. But if you do, if you get a sense of your own sin and just how much it took for God to save you, then as you go out, you will look on those who are lost, who are in need of a saviour, and your heart will break for them. And so will your excuses. They will break because of the reality, the need, the, the impetus for the mission. And then you'll find a new passion. I love what Paul says in Romans 10. How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone proclaiming to them? How can anyone proclaim unless they are, what? Sent. Who is sent? We are sent. Individuals, yes. And as a community, to see Habakkuk's vision fulfilled in this world. Not yet, but one day when Jesus returns, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
Let our prayer be that God will send us together and separately to see every man, woman, and child in Kensington in the inner west have a daily encounter with Jesus Christ in word and in deed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so gracious that you sent Jesus, the great missionary, the true and ultimate missionary, to reach us, to come to us as human, born of flesh, to die as a mortal man, so that through his death and resurrection we might become new creations, children of God, sons and daughters in your family, redeemed people, servants, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, all these things you have made us to be. Father, what you are doing to us and for us, may you also do through us. Send us, Lord, to be part of your kingdom-building work in this world, to be on your mission in everyday life, not just alone but together as the church. May people come into this community and see a love which shines even in the mess so that they might follow it through to the source. May we always, Father, give a reason for the love that we have, for the faith that we have, for the hope that we have. And may that reason be Jesus. May we be bold. May we be courageous. May we be thoughtful. May we be wise. Holy Spirit, gift us all these things for your name's sake. Amen.